what I call the three Fs, fluid, <laughs> and it's more flatter now and you have to be more fearless and authentic in your management style. We have to learn to meet every team member where they are versus having a singular path of this is where we're going to go. Hi, I'm Nils Vinya, and you're listening to the B2B Leadership Podcast, a show dedicated to demystifying leadership development one conversation at a time. Each week, I sit down with leaders in the B2B space to discuss their journey and what they've learned along the way. This podcast is brought to you by the B2B Leaders Academy. The cost of not consistently developing your leadership skills is enormous, and the B2B Leaders Academy features monthly leadership training and live coaching. Being a great leader isn't hard, you just need a guide and the right set of tools. So head on over to b2bleadersacademy.com to join and become the leader you have always wanted to be. Hello and welcome to another episode of the B2B Leadership Podcast. My name is Nils Vinya and today my guest is Rupal Nashar. Rupal, welcome to the show. Hi Nils, I'm super excited to be here at the show. Wonderful. I'm excited to have you on, Rupal. You and I have known each other for a long time and so excited to dig into all things leadership. But first, would you share with me and this audience the role you're in today and the company that you work for? Sure, absolutely. I am the VP of customer success for a company called Natomi. I run the post-sales team or what we call customer growth function, which includes the delivery teams, the CSM team, tech support, our applied AI, data scientist team. So we are in customer experience solution and AI platform for customer experience. Wow. Okay. So customer experience, AI, kind of some very big uh, and very important words in our world today. Can you share with us just, you know, some use cases or some examples of how Natomi serves its customers? Sure. Absolutely. So I think from a Natomi perspective, we service a bunch of different industries, everything from fintech to airlines to e-com, you name it, and we are a global solution. We have uh, teams and customers globally. We are based out of here in North America. And by and large, the way I think about what we do here at Natomi is we bring in elasticity into the lives of customer experience. We help orchestrate what a unifying a brand experience looks like when you're not directly engaging with the brand uh, over the phone. So we build out what those unifying messages need to be and those unifying brand experiences need to be when you're not there. Cool. All right. Well, brands working when you're not there on the phone, that's a powerful and important thing. So very cool. Sounds great. All right, Rupal. So take us back in time and would you share with us how you got into your very first leadership position? Sure. Absolutely. So my first leadership position was probably something that was not something that I designed or I was working towards very intentionally. So it came as a surprise. So I started out my career as a developer. I graduated in computer science from NYU. I was working at a consulting firm. That was my first job. I think a few months into my role, I realized that I wasn't necessarily doing a great job, or at least I wasn't happy. I was average in what I was doing. I think call it career suicide or what I went and spoke to my manager about it. And I said, I think I could be doing something else or help me find something else. And he was kind enough to 
you know, talk to me about different options. And one of the needs that the team had at that point of time was to be a business analyst and a BA for one of our key accounts at that point of time. So I was assigned to be a BA. And within the first few months, I want to say within the first quarter, I was promoted to run that team. I think the biggest thing that I had learned as part of that was, you know, good stories always beat good spreadsheets. And I liked telling good stories. I liked to narrate stories and understand how everything fit in. So that role played out to be uh, super beneficial and to my advantage, right, from a career perspective. Okay, so let's unpack a few of these pieces because there's a lot of really interesting changes happening during this time in, in your first role. So your undergrad was in computer science, right? That was focused. You were a developer. You got hired as a job developer. Probably pretty excited to put that skill set to work. And then you got into the role and realized relatively quickly that this wasn't going to work and this, this wasn't the thing. So you went to your boss and said, hey, something's not working right here. I need some help. And your boss was willing to entertain to help you <laughs> as opposed to just saying, uh, just deal with it, which I imagine, you know, happens from time to time. I've certainly been told that myself. And you got into this BA role, which perfectly aligned with your skill set. And within, uh, what was it? Six, six weeks? Yeah, within the first uh, quarter, actually, within the first... Within the first quarter. Yeah. Within the first quarter, ended up running a team of six BAs across the board. What was it about getting into that role? You mentioned the, you know, good stories beat good spreadsheets, but there's more to it than that and why someone would go from just joining the team to all of a sudden within a couple months running the team. What else was going on there that enabled you to rise to that position or at least be selected as, you know, wow, Ripple's doing a fantastic job. She should really take over running this team. So there are a couple of key things to that. I think unlike some of the traditional methodologies or frameworks of thinking, I think I was solving for the human element, right? And I think that helped superpower, supercharge or accelerate some of the conversations and helping me getting in front of the right audience because I was able to scale and have the conversations across all levels of what we were forming and what problems we were solving for. So that was one element that led to the success. And I think the other element would, it was also the idea that I wasn't necessarily playing to compete on the project. I think I was absolutely focused on winning at all costs. <laughs> so being resilient through some of the challenges, which were very critical along the way. So I think it was the resilience factor that helped me ride and be considered for being in management very early on, right? I think we came up with very creative solutions and using a philosophy of getting viewpoints from everybody within the room and trying to get to a better idea was probably what led me to that opportunity. That's really fascinating. So as you transitioned out of that role, you know, and as you progressed into when even joined other organizations, did you always stay in a leadership position or were you, did you, at any point, did you go back into an individual contributor level position? I went from managing teams to becoming an individual contributor. The role wasn't always linear from that perspective to being in management. But I think what continued to stay true was the fact that uh, I always aligned myself with the leadership path, regardless of whether I was managing a team or not. So I was always aligned and gave myself permission and wore the badge of being a leader and being an influencer and having an opinion. 
having a loud voice and thinking about different ideas, no matter where I sat in the organization. So I think although it wasn't always uh, true that I was managing a team, but I've gone from being a leader to an IC to managing teams. Interesting. So, okay. So you've, you've gone back and forth and I think it's a really interesting point about aligning yourself with the, with the leadership period, regardless of your technical role. So I'm curious for some advice that you would share with someone listening to this who either maybe is in a technically a leadership position today, or maybe is aspiring to get into one from a technical point of view, actually managing people, but they're an IC. And sometimes people have the notion that being an IC is not leadership and leadership only comes with title and blah, blah, blah. What advice would you share with someone who is thinking about that, looking at you saying, wow, that's really great example of this. How do I put this into practice? So one of the things that I will call out is if I had to sum up my leadership style in one word, right, it would be meritocracy. And what that translates into is being a great leader is not just about having great ideas or having the right titles. It's about making sure that the right ideas are being heard and that you're giving them the space to emerge and come to life, right? It's about giving the people a seat at the table, listening to them from different parts of the organization. By and large, if I had to give ideas or at least advice is be comfortable being yourself, right? Be your unapologetically weird self that you are. Give yourself and your team's permission to fail. It's okay to do that. I think what's also a tagline to that is when you fail, you have to fail fast and learn from it and evolve very quickly. The other bit that I will say is that every success that I have had or my teams have had has been as a result of a village around me and around us. So if you don't already have one, start building your own village (laughs) on your personal life or your professional life. You do need your own board of directors that are going to guide you and be there to support you. And I think finally, one of the things that folks, especially in leadership, can do better is listening, right? Not just about what is being said, but also about what is not being said more often than not, we get used to the sound of our own voices. So it's important to take a step back and let the others speak. And uh, listening better is probably a much more difficult skill than we all realize. (laughs) Yeah, agree 100%. (laughs) I will say that, you know, like I was saying, leadership isn't about the uh, the titles, about being the boss, making the decisions. It's really about taking responsibility for the outcomes and for the people. So once you start taking responsibility for the outcomes, regardless of where you sit in the organization, you automatically are giving yourself permission to be a leader, right? Don't confuse that with, with what titles people have. It's simply not true, right? It's a mindset. Even as an IC, you can have a seat at the table, but you have to work on building your influence correctly, right? The track record, coaching others along the way. For folks that are in leadership and in management right now, I think leadership is going through a massive revolution, right? It's more what I call the three Fs, fluid, (laughs) and it's more flatter now, and you have to be more fearless and authentic in your management style. We have to learn to meet every team member where they are versus having a singular path of this is where we're going to go. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That was so much great advice there. You know, one of the first things you said there was being yourself and being your weird self. And that's something that sometimes can be a little bit tricky. Would you be willing to share just something about you and what is what does it mean to be yourself inside of your organization today? What what do you bring to the table that's kind of your weird self that you integrate into the into the day to day world? 
So <laughs> there is a lot of my weird self that seeps into my calls, my interactions. I think my teams see it daily. I have a very dry sense of humor. I absolutely believe in having a good laugh, even in the middle of a crisis. And I think people may may sometimes find it find it weird that that I'm able to take a very serious situation and build a narrative around it because I really need for people to focus and on what we need to do and not take things so seriously to a point where we're forgetting what the problem needs to be solved. So I think providing that kind of perspective is important. So I have a very dry sense of humor sometimes that I think my 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 colleagues have caught on to. The other weird self, uh, my weird moment, I think uh, seeps in is... I, <laughs> oh gosh, I'm doing this on a public platform, is I sometimes I'm, I'm working in pajamas. I think my teams have probably seen me or may have called me and it's in the middle of the day or, and I just might be in, in my PJs and it's, it's bringing myself to work when I have a sick child at home and I didn't have a chance to change. Um, so, so that's a little bit of weirdness that, that might come in. But more so from my leadership style, I would say I am weird. I do tell my teams it's okay to fail. I, in fact, right before this call is when I was in, in a Slack conversation where somebody from my team was, hey, I made a mistake and I need to talk. And I said, it's okay. We got this. We'll figure it out. It's perfectly okay to fail. I think that's a very weird way that I've heard one of my folks come back and say that I've never heard anybody in my management give me permission to fail. That's another weird thing. I think the list goes on. I think we all have our own little things. That, that, that Yeah, those are fantastic. Well, thank you for just being vulnerable and sharing a little bit here. I appreciate it. The audience does too, because everybody at one point or time, especially during the pandemic times, was working from their PJs in the middle of the day. I guarantee it. Like, and if they say they didn't, they're lying. <laughs> let's just let's just leave it at that. The fail fast piece and what you were just describing within the Slack conversation right before we got on uh, is really interesting one and, and comes up and has come up with other guests on the podcast. And I'm curious for how you foster this kind of environment. Because it's one thing to say, okay, we have you know, celebrate failure and we fail fast and blah, blah, blah. It's kind of a, you know, a lot of tech companies will talk about that, but the reality sometimes is not the case. So how do you foster that environment where people feel actually, number one, they believe it. And number two, they actually feel comfortable to the point where it's an empowering thing as opposed to, well, we talk about this, but we don't really do it. Yeah. So sometimes these things have to be put on paper, right? But what really matters is how you live these on a daily basis. I don't think I've arrived at this place immediately. I've had to earn the trust of people within the team to come and speak up to me. So I think that has been instrumental in fostering this because I have to really live it. I can't I can't afford to overreact and uh, I can't afford to take things for granted when it comes to people. And I think one other thing that I've done very intentionally is when I'm bringing in additional managers, right? This is a key thing that I think about, or even people for that matter. I'll, I'll use this analogy because I think it may stick better, is if you look at a graph and you look at the concept of a simple interest, right? People are growing in their careers and and, and are working towards making progress versus a compound interest and the trajectory what that has. I try to bring in people who will follow the compound interest analogy and will take the rest of the department with them when they're growing and learning. And that kind of growth and learning and 
team building only happens when you have a very open and safe environment for you to raise your hand and say what's working well versus not working well, right? And I think I am explicitly very open about things when I know when I have messed up or things that I could have done better. I have no shame in in showing all my cards and saying, hey, you know what? I could have done this presentation better or I could have put this in a different narrative or I actually did send the email to the wrong person. You have to be vulnerable, vulnerable enough to share these things, these moments with your teams and foster that sense of, of, of space that it's okay to raise your hand and say, you know, I really did mess up. I think that's part of it. Yeah. That leading by example, I mean, that, that speaks volumes to you and your leadership style. And, you know, it's, you can say things like it's okay to fail, but if you never say you failed, it's kind of like hard to believe. Then they look at, people might look at you and be like, well, if it's okay to fail, how come you never fail? (laughs) <laughs> and it's like, no, no, I'm not perfect either. I will fail. But calling that out and making it a conscious thing to say, nope, here's a great example. This did not work. Like, this is what happened. And then people seeing that example and being like, oh, okay, now I get it. I could tell that kind of a story too. Yeah, I fail all the time. That is right. So the soundtrack of excellence is not with awesome music all the time. It's a lot of crappy music along the way that comes along. Same here. It is a, it's a very different track <laughs> that we are used to. We'll get back to the interview in just a minute. This episode is brought to you by the B2B Leaders Academy. The cost of not consistently developing your leadership skills is enormous. The B2B Leaders Academy features monthly leadership training and live coaching. Being a great leader isn't hard. You just need a guide and the right set of tools. Head on over to b2bleadersacademy.com to join and become the leader you've always wanted to be. Now let's get back to the interview. You talked about evolving. So in that, it's kind of wrapped up in that fail fast, right? So what does evolving, how do you, how do you go from failing fast to evolving in, a, in an efficient way? In an efficient way, I think from an organization perspective, I think no matter what, one of the key principles that I've learned in my past life was when I worked at a hedge fund called Bridgewater was the concept of reflecting, right? I think understanding what went wrong and why it went wrong to the best of the ability so we can boil it down to what improvements we need to make from a people process technology, right? So sometimes it is different roles. Sometimes it means we need to net out with a new way of thinking. I think there might be a different way of approaching a problem. So I think while we're reflecting and thinking about those things, I think it's also important to have very audacious goals. So that sets the bar and stretches you to fail a little bit while you're actually succeeding as well. So it's fed into the ecosystem of growth, right? So I think that will ultimately lead to the kind of success and the velocity of success that most organizations are hungry for these days, right? Yeah, love it. And you also mentioned building a village and and being supported by a village. Uh, Could you share a little bit more about what you mean from that? And, you know, in the context of how that has evolved in your career from when you were in IC to, you know, now you're at the VP level, like how has your village evolved? How has my village evolved? And I'll tell you a little bit more about this is, and I'm being very vulnerable, I think, I have different folks within my village. I think I have folks that are 
sometimes very critical because I want somebody to be very black and white and critical of what I'm doing because it gives me the ability to look at some things with the most amount of risks or the most amount of failure points along the way that I need to achieve. So I have a whole board of directors or a village that I call it that that help me move the needle personally uh, on my front that I need to achieve. So when it comes to my career, I have a bucket along the side of leadership that I look to you for, Nils, right? When I've taken your training class is what would Nils do is a question that comes to mind. So I have that space to safely ask more leadership and guided questions around that. And from a customer success perspective, I do have peers across globally where I feel vulnerable enough to share what I'm working on and how I'm moving the needle or thinking about an idea that may not have been done before or an approach to maybe solving world problems through CS kind of a deal, right? (laughs) I have some some flavor of folks within each aspect of my life that bring a perspective, the good and the bad, and uh, sometimes very avant-garde that even I feel like I need to challenge myself better. So that helps me get there from my personal growth. And it also ultimately helps my organization because I bring my best self to work then. And then from a team perspective, I think within an organization, and this is something that I even look for when I'm bringing on people as part of interviews, is you often speak to people and people say, I did this or I did that. And I don't think it's an I thing. I don't think success is an individual person's right. I think it generally is a we thing. So I look for people that will be we, will think about what it takes to get there and will take people along with them. So I don't think that in any scenario, any of my successes can be attributed singularly to me. It's been a village of people. It's been folks that have been part of my team, sometimes not even part of my team that have given me the right kind of guidance or have shown me where the landmines are for where I need to go better or things to watch out for. And sometimes I get even emails from folks that have nothing to do with CS or my role and will say, hey, you know, I heard this and this is what we're doing. In my space, this might be something that you might want to look into, right? So it does take a village to get to success. Everybody has a role to play, which is where this idea of meritocracy comes in, right? Like if you think about a car, right? A car may have like 5,000 pieces, 6,000 pieces to it. Not one single thing is the most important, right? I think everything has to fit together. Everybody has a role to play. So I wouldn't say somebody is more important or less important, but it does take everybody's all to get us to where we want to be. The way you describe that board in your village, like gives me this like sense of just, there's all these people around you who, who want nothing to do, but help you succeed. Right. And you've cultivated those relationships over time. I'm curious, how did this all start? Like, when did you have the reflection point said, you know what, I'm going to probably need a bigger support group than I have today. Perhaps I should start putting some time and effort and energy into building this board or building this village for myself. That's a that's a really good question. I think this goes back to my first promotion that I had and I became a manager for the BAs. The first thing I will say is that what I learned from that, I had a great leader, by the way. He asked me, he said, do you know what you could have done better? And here I was sitting in front of the room and feeling so great about myself, patting myself on the back and all of those things. And like our team did this. And he said, you could have arrived here a lot faster if you only asked for help. So, (laughs) and that was so profound to me. And I said, this is really, really 
so significant in my life that I still continue to struggle with this. People know me that I have to be very intentional about asking for help and knowing that. So I've just built an ecosystem where where I know that I'm not doing okay, I will reach out. But it started with my first promotion and that first conversation saying that, uh, you know, you could have gotten here a lot faster, just ask for help. And I realized that I should be doing a much better job of asking for help. And there's a lot that I don't know. So, and it's okay not to know is what I learned that you don't have to be the expert at everything. So I think it started right, right back there. You're the embodiment of that. You know, one, one comment, right? In the grand scheme of your whole career, one comment had that big of an impact that then led you down a path to ask for help, to get, want to get things done faster, ask for help, accept that you're not going to know everything and just build this village. And here you are at VP of CS level, having gone through lots of different directions and things to get there, as you said, no linear path, but you've made consistent, steady progress. I am honored to be part of your board and part of your village. And when I put out my the very beginning of what is now called the B2B Leaders Academy, you were one of the very first people that signed up and you just jumped at the opportunity. And that was a perfect example of, you know, leadership from a personal perspective of you were investing in your growth, right? We knew each other before, but you wanted to go deeper with me in the tools and the in the leadership training and coaching that I had. And I was ecstatic to be part of your growth and development during that period of time. And then we've known each other and been in touch ever since. And that's been wonderful. And that's how these things, that's how these relationships start. And it's it doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. But you have to make the decision first, just like Rupal said. Could have gotten to where you are a lot faster if you asked for help. That is one of the single most important things in leadership period is just ask for help. And don't be willing to, you know, be willing to do whatever it takes to get it, whether it's investing in a program, whether it's investing in coaching, whether it's investing in something, whether even regardless of if your company is going to pay for it or not, right? That asking for help and enriching your life and forming a connection with somebody else is just going to pay huge dividends and even getting to know other people in whatever program you happen to join. Super cool. All right, Rupal. There was one other piece that kind of summarizes a large percentage of these, or at least is the kind of an overarching thing. And you said, from a leadership perspective, you really have to be responsible for outcomes. Can you share a little bit more about what it means to actually be responsible for outcomes? Yeah. So responsible for outcomes, I think we often have certain business KPIs. And I'm glad you asked that. So it's it's one thing that we need to meet those KPIs. But when I think about outcomes, I think about outcomes holistically. We have a path to getting to where our um, KPIs are. And then on one side of the house, we have our outcomes for our customers. And the other side, we have a well-balanced team, a healthy team that is making progress, is fulfilled. So those are outcomes from a team perspective. So for me, outcomes is a triangulation of all of that together is your business outcomes, the success of your customers, and also the success of your teams. So for me, being responsible for outcomes means you're making decisions while you're balancing everything and the second and third order consequences when you're making decisions on what the downstream impacts are going to be, right? Is And taking into account what we need to do right now So we are essentially thinking about what our future organization may also look like. So I think being taking ownership of outcomes, being responsible holistically about what we need to do as an organization to get to our numbers. 
Love it. And that responsibility element right there, you and I have talked about this and, you know, I'm curious for the balance between where this is just a psychology thing where you make a decision to be responsible versus an organization thing, which says, here, you're responsible. What is the balance that you see between those two? Is this purely an internal, like, I got to decide, make the decision? Or is this something that the organization does play a part in as well? Well, I think the organization plays a part in it. I think managers, peers, everybody plays a part in it. I think you have to inspire people to want to solve for the problem, right? I continuously tell folks within my team when I speak to them is, is the problem exciting enough? And do you want to be here to solve the problem, right? And if that isn't a yes, then you shouldn't be here, right? So there's an element of learning that's going to happen along the way. There's an element of pushing your boundaries that you may not be comfortable doing, right? So that comes into being responsible is pushing those boundaries to get to where we want to be. So inspiration, pushing those boundaries are part of it when it comes to the teams. I And I absolutely believe that when it comes to responsibility, it's not something you can ask somebody to do. You're going to get something that's very half-baked. You're not going to get something that is revolutionary. That's not going to be something that is the best and may not be something that aligns with what you want. So I think it's important to inspire people to where they want to go with, with the problems that they want to solve. And if it's the right alignment there, right? with the teams. So I don't think it's just that here you go, go finish this, right? And sometimes it is, there is an element of doing the grunt work, but it's our responsibility to paint the picture of how all the pieces fit together and why this grunt work is necessary, right? Why this operational stuff is necessary and what it's going to result into before dishing out something that is like, hey, you know, we need this right away right now versus we need this now and this is why and this is the impact it's going to have. And I love what you said about aligning with the individuals and checking to see if they really want to be involved in solving these problems. Because no matter what, like maybe yes, maybe no, but an aligned individual to the problems is going to be an awful lot more motivated than someone who just, you know, is mailing it in or punching the clock or whatnot. And it's our job as leaders to suss that out. And not everybody's going to be set up for everything perfectly, but we can ask the question. Yeah, and now more than ever, right? Because we're all so virtual and fragmented, it's more important to have something that bonds us together, uh, right? Some glue that bonds us together where they feel, everybody feels that the people that are in the teams are vested in them, that the leadership is vested in their happiness and their success. Yeah, 100%. All right, cool. So last question here. If you were able to go back in time and sit down, have a conversation with your younger self right when you got into that BA first BA role before you got promoted to the team or right about, I know it was within a couple months, so pretty close to that. And you knew everything that you know now, what advice would you give to your younger self? I would say slow down is what I would tell myself. And I think I'd be more confident about making mistakes than I was back then. And, and I'll also answer this in a different light. You haven't asked this question, I know Nils, but this is something that I get asked often is about, you know, career goals and moving forward in life. And, you know, where do you see yourselves like three years, five years, 10 years from now? Or, you know, you're in the space of you're an imposter syndrome, right? I think real growth happens is when you are in that uncomfortable space, right? So most people treat imposter syndrome as something that they need to overcome. You don't need to overcome it. 
you know, be comfortable in that space because you're probably pushing your boundaries to learn something new that you haven't before. I always say that look at yourself five years from now and 10 years from now and think about that person. What does that person project? What do they look like? What do they sound like? What do they behave? What is their thought process? What are their habits? And then try and inculcate that back into your life, right? So it's not just about looking backwards, but it's also looking forwards that it's important that we bring some of those elements and that confidence back and instill it in your life. Absolutely. Bring it, you know, imagine it before it happens. And the best part is your mind doesn't really know. It's like playing tricks on your own mind and it works for you. So that is absolutely wonderful advice, Rupal. Well, thank you so much. It has been a pleasure to talk about leadership, your progression, all the wonderful insights that you've had going from an IC to a VP. And I just can't wait to see all the wonderful things you, you and the team at Natomi are going to continue to do. So thank you for spending time with me today. Thank you, Nils. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Talk soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to the B2B Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd welcome you to subscribe and give the show a five-star review. You can see the show notes and all of the resources mentioned in today's episode at b2bleadershippodcast.com. As always, I'm Nils Vinya, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Take care and have a great rest of your day. This podcast is brought to you by the B2B Leaders Academy. The cost of not consistently developing your leadership skills is enormous. And the B2B Leaders Academy features monthly leadership training and live coaching. Being a great leader isn't hard. You just need a guide and the right set of tools. So head on over to B2Bleadersacademy.com to join and become the leader you have always wanted to be.